come on a journey with a cinephile. Wake up, sucker. We're thieves and we're bad guys. That's exactly what we are. Welcome listeners to episode 178 of Journey with a Cinephile, a horror movie podcast. As always, I'm your tour guide here of David Garrett Jr. recording out of Columbus, Ohio. And in this episode here for you, I'm going to have featured reviews of, this is going to be my first of the three, as I should say that first, but I have The Pale Blue Eye is going to be the 2023 release, and then I'm pairing that up with Supernatural. This is kind of a double feature of Supernatural things might be happening in one of them, might be happening in both, but this is also kind of like a murder mystery potential thing there. I'll get into that later as I get into the movies themselves, but I also have mini reviews of Species, The Awakening, The Haunting from 1963 summoning sylvia and skeleton of mrs morales so it's kind of interesting is that the haunting is going to be my traverse of the three since that's the older version and then i also have a journey through the aughts here with skeleton and mrs morales i'll get into both of those during the mini reviews and then summoning sylvia is one that is a screener that i got to watch as well so I don't think there's anything else you need to get you up to speed with here. I will say, though, is I was going to be doing my monthly review for March. I'm going to push that back till next week just because I watched a movie on Friday that's going to be on the next episode. So I'm just going to go ahead and just push everything out there. So what I will say then in closing here is thank you so much for listening, and I hope you enjoy coming on this journey with me. Journey with a Cinephile. And for my first mini-review is going to be Species The Awakening. This is from 2007, directed by Nick Lyon. It was written by Ben Ripley, stars Helen Madison, Ben Cross, and Dominic Keating. This is an action-adventure horror sci-fi thriller that is from a co-production of the United States and Mexico. This is currently sitting on a 4.0 on IMDb and a 1.6 on Letterboxd with a synopsis being... When she reaches the end of her lifespan, a scientist rushes to Mexico to save the half-breed alien seductress he raises a docile niece, but soon awakens the deadly sexual predator inside her. So, this is a movie that I learned about a few years ago. I saw the original when it hit the movie channels and I loved it. I've come to realize that it isn't great, but it's still a solid creature feature alien type movie. 
So the sequels, they stepped back with the third one being not very good. So I came in not expecting much here. And I watched this also to complete the franchise on Letterboxd since I'm, you know, that type of person. So from what I kind of realized, this one doesn't acknowledge any of the previous movies. I'd go as far to say that this is more of a spinoff. What it makes me think is that we're going back to what happened in the first one. Now, there was this transmission of DNA that created Syl, and it almost seems like a duo of Tom and Forbes also received it, and they are being portrayed by Cross and Keating. It is a feasible idea that others could have obtained this DNA as well, and I'm assuming that the species did not just send one out. Now, going from this idea, the basic premise here is that Tom seemed to be like a lonely guy who created this little girl. He realized that what he did was wrong, so he raised her as his own. Now that Miranda is struggling, he wants to help her, and she is portrayed by Madison. Now, there's a mad scientist angle here of playing God. Forbes tells Tom that what they have to do is bad. Tom is willing to do whatever it takes to help her, and we aren't necessarily getting a new story here. This has vibes of Frankenstein when you break it down into its most basic ideas. But there is another aspect here that I want to go into. What I'm alluding to is that this is a little village in Mexico has many forms of this alien species. It tries to add tension here as Tom doesn't know who he can trust. He is attacked by Azura and she isn't the only one. Now she is portrayed by Marlene Favela. Now, the subtitle of The Awakening comes from the fact that the evil part of his niece, Miranda, wakes up. I do use that in the loosest terms, though. Yes, it wakes up, but she's an alien species, or at least half of that. Now, she's doing what that creature would do. It is also her nature to propagate. Now, as humans, we see her as a villain, and I have to say that Forbes and Tom are as well. Now, I've already said that this is supposed to build tension, but it doesn't. This movie had issues holding my attention. It just feels too formulaic. I've seen this before, and it doesn't do anything to set itself apart. I'll bring in the other filmmaking aspects here. I'd say that cinematography is fine. We get to see flashes of Miranda in her human and alien form. It will switch between the two, and I thought that was kind of interesting editing. This relies too much on CG, though. I think that the alien design is practical though. Now computers are used when she would attack people or other aliens use their tentacles. Now it's not great CGI. Other than that, the soundtrack was fine for what was needed. Now all it's left to go into to be the acting. I think that Madison is solid as our alien. She has a look that is needed. We do see her nude, which is solid. Now Cross is fine as her uncle, who has the best of intentions for her even though they're misguided. Keating also works as the more villainous scientist. What is interesting here is that he's only bad due to using this experiment for financial gain without care for repercussions. Favalil was also attractive. Now, the acting here isn't great, but it's fine. So, in conclusion here, this movie has good elements. I do think this one is interesting that it is more of a spin-off than a sequel. The mad scientist aspect could be played up a bit more and maybe even focusing more on the capitalism angle. I would say that this is made well enough. The effects we get could be better, but that would be just of the era of CGI. Now the acting is fine, no one stands out, but no one is overly bad in my opinion. This is just a struggle to keep my attention. I can't recommend this unless you're a completionist like me. So my rating here for Species The Awakening is going to be a 5 out of 10. And for my next mini review is going to be The Haunting. This is from 1963. This is directed by Robert Wise. It was written by Nate Nelson Gidding and then it's from the story by Shirley Jackson. Stars Julie Harris, Claire Bloom, and Richard Johnson. This is a horror film that is from the United Kingdom. Currently sitting on a 7.4 on IMDb and a 3.8 on Letterboxd. With our synopsis being Hill House, 
has stood for about 90 years and appears haunted. Its inhabitants have always met strange and tragic ends. Now, Dr. John Markway has assembled a team of people who he thinks will either prove whether the house is haunted. So this is one that I sought out since I saw the remake in theater. I'll admit, back then I was a fan. I would have been right around graduating from college when I first saw this version. A confession at the time was I didn't love it. It has been on a list of ones to revisit to see where I might stand after watching it with a more critical eye. And where I actually want to start would be that I have not read the source material either from Jackson. It is on an ever-growing list of books and stories to read. What I do bring to the table is that I've seen the remake quite a few times. That includes in the theater as well as on DVD. What I can say to end out this part is that this version is much better, even if it's more subdued. Now, with that out of the way, I much like the remake, this one follows an experiment. Dr. Markway, who is portrayed by Johnson, is out to prove that there's an afterlife. He originally wanted more people to come to the house with them, but it ends up being only Eleanor and Theo, with that being Harris and Bloom, respectively. Luke is also there to watch over the house as he hopes to inherit it one day, and that is played by the great Russ Tamblin. Now, we have a small, intimate cast. With that, we have... We limit the amount of hauntings that we get. This, to me, is more of a character study of Eleanor and the house itself than the actual haunting. Now, let me break down Eleanor a bit more. It is fitting that she uses the term in it as a pun. Eleanor was taken care of her sick mother for years. Her sister went out and got married, now has a family. Due to that, she is more stable. The years of helping her mother have worn on Eleanor. It has stunted her socially and scarred her mentally. She is close to having a mental breakdown at the beginning of this movie. She also seems to have a psychic abilities as well. An incident from when she was a child is brought up. It was used verbatim in Rose Red, which is a take on the story as well. I thought this makes for an interesting concept to explore, and Harris does good in her portrayal. The house itself is where I'll go next. I think it's another character to study uh, as well. We learn about the dimensions being off. It also has odd items like statues and things to this effect. That is good as well. The house is also huge, so it gets confusing to not only us as a viewer, but our characters themselves. I think this does well in making this place have a good atmosphere and without overdoing it. Cinematography also helps. They do interesting things that feel disorienting. Going along with that, the sound design with the banging on walls and stuff and like the doors. Though there could be a logical explanation, we just don't fully know. Then the last part I'm going to go into with the story is that I want to explore is that there's a way to look at this at the house is haunted and wants Eleanor. Much like how Hugh's first two wives pass away, she could be the next one. There also is the idea that she just snapped. All of the supernatural things that could be happening are around her. I'm more inclined to think this place isn't haunted, or if it is, the things are happening are caused by Eleanor and her psychic abilities. She cannot control them and she's an emotional wreck. The fear and the psychosis of this house is too much for her. I like how this is presented and left up to the audience for sure. All I have to go into would be the acting. I've already said that Harris is good. I'd say that Bloom, Johnson, and Tamblin are all as well. They all get isolated together, and we see that the longer they're together, the more they annoy each other. We get the idea that Theo likes to pick. Dr. Markway is a good man. A dynamic here is that Eleanor starts to fall for him since he talks to her and shows her attention. The more of her not understanding, though, is that since he's already married, it works in the confines there, and he's not going overboard with it either. Luke is also immature and uses his confidence as a way to cover up that he's scared. Aside from that, I thought the rest of the cast rounded us out for what was needed. I want to give special credit, though, to Rosalie McCrutchley as Mrs. Dudley. Her ominous warnings make this atmosphere work even better. 
So in conclusion, is a solid haunted house film. This is one where it's something a bit different for the time and where the house might not actually be haunted, but Eleanor. The performances are good. Harris carries this with his character study. The atmosphere is built through the filmmaking, and the setting helps as well. I still don't love this movie, but I can see why it's considered a classic. I'd still recommend giving this one a viewing for sure. So my rating for The Haunting from 1963 is going to be an 8 out of 10. Then up next, I got to watch a screener for Summoning Sylvia. This is from 2023. This was written and directed between Wesley Taylor and Alex Wise. This stars Travis Coles, Frankie Grande, and Tori Iwata. This is a comedy horror thriller film that is from the United States. It is currently sitting on, well, actually, IMDb, there's not enough ratings yet. And then it looks like on Letterboxd, there aren't enough ratings for an average yet. But I would say this is hovering around a three, three and a half star movie over there with our synopsis being a gay bachelor party turned spooky when sinister spirits are suddenly summoned. So this movie that I learned about when Justin Cook reached out about potentially watching the screener, I confirmed that I would when I saw this was horror. I read a bit of the description ahead of seeing it, and I also knew this was a comedy, so it made me wonder which genre it would fall more into. So I decided that, now for this one, it's more like a character study than an actual haunting. Those elements are light, to be honest, and that doesn't necessarily mean that's a bad thing. This movie, though, is comedy first. It is hilarious at that. I'll come back to that shortly, but I first want to break down the characters so that carries the movie story-wise for me. Now, each of the characters have their flaws. There is Larry, who is too nice, and he's actually the bachelor here. And he's afraid to upset the people that he's with, so he just kind of goes with the flow. And he also avoids conflict, that character portrayed by Coles. Now, to be honest, though, I see myself there. He also seems to tone down who he is when his soon-to-be brother-in-law of Harrison shows up since his brother-in-law is straight and Harrison is portrayed by Nicholas Logan. Now, there's also Nico, who is a big personality. He won't tone it down, and I appreciate him for being who he is, and that makes for comedy as well, and that Nico is portrayed by Grande. And then we also have, he also butts heads with Harrison, I should say that. There is Reggie, who is a meticulous planner. He is portrayed by Awada. And now I should also say when things get disrupted, it annoys him. There is Kevin, who is a, a hopeless romantic. Kevin being portrayed by Noah J. Ricketts. And he also seems to be interested in Reggie. Harrison is interesting, as I said. He's a former military guy who has a bit of PTSD and maybe a drinking problem. The acting here is great, though, from Coles, Grande, Awada, Ricketts, and Logan. They all play so well with each other, as I was saying. Now I'm going to shift over to the haunting. What I like here is that we get this lore of what happened. It is thought that Sylvia, who is portrayed by Vianne Cox, might have killed her son, Philip, who is portrayed by Camden Garcia. The group is hoping to bring them back to find out the truth, and they're going to do this through a seance. So this is a section that we see more and more as this movie goes on, and I like that. What I didn't care for, though, is it seemed to be the focal point, but it's more of a MacGuffin. It pushes the story along as there are reveals there, and I'd say that Cox and Garcia are good in their roles as well. So the last bit that's what I want to bring up is the social commentary here. I think this is well done. It didn't feel in your face, so you could just enjoy this as a haunted house comedy. There is the element of Harrison being the fish out of water. What I love is that this is normalizing this group of friends and how they live their lives. Having more movies like this and to make it more normal is good for cinema in my opinion. Now I did lie. There is one other thing I want to bring up and that is the horror elements. As a horror fan and reviewer, I wish they would have ramped this up a bit more. That is why I feel the subplot with Sylvia is a MacGuffin. 
it moves the story forward, but it seems like that's all it is there for. The atmosphere is good at times, being a bit creepy. This leans more into comedy, though, which I'm not always a fan of. Now, all I think it's left to go into would be the filmmaking. I think this is shot well. The cinematography and editing are good. I like how they will mesh different things together where a character will be doing something. Then we will shift to another character in that same position and then carry on from there. I do enjoy when a movie can do things like that. There aren't a lot in the way of effects here outside of that. And it also seemed like it didn't need them. Other than that, I thought the soundtrack was fine. It fit for what was needed, especially during a montage scene, which was fun. And there's another one where Harrison is trying to be part of the group where he's listening to like metal music and everybody's just kind of trying to go along with it. I thought that was kind of fun. So in conclusion, this is a fun movie. This is more of a comedy than horror. That is something I wanted to establish. We have a great group of characters that feel like old friends. The acting fits perfectly there. The littlest things and the stress of the situation opens unresolved issues. I also think that there's a good message here of how things play out as well. Not sure if I could fully recommend this to horror fans though. If you don't mind one that is a bit more lighthearted, then this is for you. I did have a blast here, I will say that. So my rating for Summoning Sylvia is going to be a 7.5 out of 10. Then my last mini review for this week is going to be The Skeleton of Mrs. Morales. This is also go by the original title of El Escuelito de la Señora Morales. This is from 1960. This was directed by Rogelio A. Gonzalez. It was written by Luis El Corzia, but it also is from the story by Arthur Machen. Now this stars Arturo de Cordova, Amparo Rivelas, and Elda Peralta. This is a com comedy crime horror film that is from Mexico. Currently sitting on a 7.9 on IMDb and a 4.1 on Letterboxd with our synopsis being, a taxidermist decides to murder his wife after having to put up with her after 20 years of hellish marriage. So this is an interesting movie. I didn't know about it until I had compiled a list of horror movies on Letterboxd from 1960. This was the next one up when I was trying to do my journey through the aughts in, back in 2020. I didn't watch it though since it wasn't streaming at the time. I elected to watch something else instead. Now I watch this as the next highest movie on Letterboxd on their top like 250 horror movies that I hadn't seen rating wise as this is now being shown on Tubi. So we have a simple enough story here. It is more of a character study of this married couple. This isn't even a new concept. I don't even think for the era that this came out. What is interesting, though, is where this one goes. Where I'll start, though, are the two leads. Now, first, let me talk about Dr. Pablo Morales, portrayed by D. Cordova. What I said is that he looks like a good man to me. His wife is nagging, and the only people who side with her are this church group. I take it that Pablo doesn't believe or just non-practicing. He is a weird profession, though, and what is interesting to me, though, is when did Gloria start to resent him? She is portrayed by Ravellis. Now, in the beginning, it seems like she learned she couldn't have children. There might have been stemming from the same ailment that caused one of her legs to go bad, which would be her right one. It's a little bit lame. Instead of living her life, she became a religious fanatic and angry with the world. What is odd, though, is that she projects bad things that Pablo could be doing. I would say the performances from both D. Cordova and Ravellis are good. They feel like characters, and the resentment doesn't seem forced. Now, sticking with Gloria, Gloria I want to pull in Padre Familiar and his crew. Now, he is portrayed by Armando Ariola. Now, they seem to be real villains here. This is odd, though, being a Mexican movie and knowing that they tend to be deeply religious. What I take from this, though, is that it can be dangerous. Padre and this group believe Gloria over Pablo. They don't even try to consider things from his side. It comes off as a cult. 
Now, it is interesting, though, is that late into this, they're right about something. Pablo does things to get away with a crime, and they notice. I watched this movie with my sister, and I questioned why he would put a certain thing on display. The explanation that is given later makes sense. Now, he doesn't have to hide it, and I was impressed there. I'm also being cryptic as to not spoil, as I don't think a lot of people have seen this. Now, since I've brought up the two leads, let me go to the rest of the acting. Elda Peralta is good as Senorita Castro. She runs a store that Pablo comes to. We see that she is probably the best fit for him, but he's loyal. I like that we also have Rosenda Monteros, who is Mencha, the housekeeper. This is partially comedy, as I like how this is insinuating that she might be having an affair with Pablo until we see the truth. I also thought that Bravo, who is Antonio Bravo, who's actually the Padre now that I'm seeing. I actually gave the wrong name earlier, but I digress with that. But I thought he was good as being the, like with him and the rest of the church group. Across the board, the acting was solid and it fits for what was needed. All that's left to go into then would be with the filmmaking. I thought that the cinematography was good. We focus on different things and that helps to build tension. I love that the shop that Pablo works in, there are skeletons on display, which is something that I've been referring to that'll come back later. And then I also like the hawk that he's nursing back to health. We don't get a lot in the way of effects, but it also isn't that type of movie. And it's also early enough into cinema. The soundtrack also fits for what was needed. In conclusion, this is an odd little film. It is light on the horror elements, being more of a comedy. How things play out, though, are dark. And I can see why for the time period it falls here. The acting was good. Two leads embody the character as well and how they play off each other. It's also well made, as I should say. I enjoyed my time here, and I think that this is interesting things to say as well. This won't be one that I would recommend to everyone. You would need to be a fan of the era and these type of movies. Also be advised, this is Mexican, so I had to watch it with subtitles on. But my rating here for The Skeleton of Mrs. Morales is going to be a 7 out of 10. So what I'm going to go ahead and do is get you over to the trailer of my first featured review. Is it true? You once solicited a confession with nothing more than piercing look. With enough patience, a suspect will often interrogate himself. Detective Landor, one of our cadets, hanged himself last night. That's the matter for the coroner. I'm afraid that's not the end of it. His heart was carved from his chest. What type of fella could do this? You have to be. A bad man. Needed to decipher this. Rumor has it there are instructions for immortality. Someone there? Discreetly infiltrate the cadets. What is this? Blood, symbols, rituals. Oh my lord. Man will do most anything to cheat death. Where are the facts? Where are the simple facts? The truth! I believe the dead haunt us because we love them too little. Close to finding who's responsible for this than we were a month ago. We are closer. It's only a matter of time. 
And for my first featured review on this episode is going to be the Pale Blue Eye. This is from 2022, but it's getting its wide release. I think it had a limited release in that year, but then this year is where it yeah, hit Netflix. So this was directed by Scott Cooper, who also wrote this for the screen, but it's based on the book by Lewis Bayard. This stars Christian Bale, Harry Melling, and Simon McBurney, while also featuring Timothy Spall, Toby Jones, Harry Lottie, Fred Heikinger, Joey Brooks, Charlotte Gainsborough, Lucy Boynton, Robert Duvall, Gillian Anderson, Stephen Mayer, Brennan Keel Cook, Orlog Cassidy, Scott Anderson, Gideon Click, and Jack Irv. This is a crime horror mystery thriller that is from the United States. It is currently sitting on a 6.6 on IMDb and a 3.1 on Letterboxd with the synopsis being a world-weary detective is hired to investigate the murder of a West Point cadet. Stymied by the cadet's code of silence, he enlists one of their own to help unravel the case. A young man the world will come to know as Edgar Allan Poe. Now, this is a movie that caught my attention early into the year. This came out on January 6th, as I was saying, to Netflix. And I put this on a list of ones to check out that when I found out that this was considered to be horror... Now, having Christian Bale was a plus as well, but I didn't realize until settling in was that this was directed by Cooper, who also co-wrote this, as I was saying. Now, he worked with Bale on Out of the Furnace, which I did enjoy. That's not the only one they did together, but that's, I think, the only one that I've seen so far. So, actually, before I get into the movie itself, though, let me do some feature notes, and I'll start with our director of Cooper. He has helmed seven pictures. I've seen four. I didn't realize that one of them was Antlers from a couple years ago. Now, he seems to be working with Bale, as I was saying, so, you know, good for him. But out of horror, I've seen Out of the Furnace and Black Mass. Then, as a writer, he has eight credits. His first was For Sale by Owner in Horror that I had not seen. Now, he also wrote this in Antlers. This is the fourth in genre with a head full of ghosts that doesn't seem to have a release date as of yet. Over to our cast, I'll start with Bale. He's been in 70 things. I've seen 15. Out of horror, I've seen, like, the Dark Knight trilogy, the Prestige, Thor, Love and Thunder, as well as the Big Short. In genre, he has three. There is American Psycho, this, and Blood Drips Heavily on Newsy Square. Not really sure about that one, but I haven't seen that, of course. But then there is his co-star of Melling. I didn't realize that he played Dudley Dursley in the Harry Potter films. Those are mostly what I've seen him in as this is only horror film so far. So I should say that I've seen six of his 18. And lastly, I will look at Boynton. She's been in 28 movies, and I've seen five. Not in genre is Murder on the Orient Express. In horror, she has five. I've seen her first, which was The Black Coat's Daughter. I've also seen her in I Am the Pretty Thing That Lives in the House, then this. The only ones that I haven't seen yet are Don't Knock Twice or Apostle. So then, to get in the movie itself here, let me is that we start with a quote from Poe about the boundaries of life and death. We then see someone hanging from a tree. It is foggy out. It then shifts over to Augustus Landor, portrayed by Bale, as he is washing his hands in a creek. It is also quite snowy. What I will say here is that he is the world-weary detective. Life has given him a raw deal. His wife passed away, and then his daughter is missing. Now, he lives in a cabin in the middle of the woods. Now, his life has changed when a Captain Hitchcock, portrayed by McBurney, visits him. They want him to be the detective to solve what happened to a cadet we saw hanging. This was Cadet Fry, portrayed by Mayer. Now, a contract is agreed upon between Superintendent Thayer, portrayed by Spall. Now, the pressure is on due to politicians in Washington, D.C. wanting to shut down West Point. 
This incident could give them the ammunition that they need. Now, referring to the synopsis, things aren't easy for Landor. That is when he enlists the aids of Cadet Poe, portrayed by Melling. Now, he's an odd boy who was bullied. Now, he's fond of poetry, and if memory serves, he is already published. Landor takes a liking as Poe is a brilliant codebreaker already. He also can relay the information the other cadets won't. So, there are other players to deal with in this murder mystery. There is Dr. Daniel Marquis, portrayed by Jones, who works at the school. His son also attends, Cadet Artemis Marquis, portrayed by Lottie. Now, their mother is Julia, portrayed by Anderson. They also have a daughter of Leia, portrayed by Boynton. Now, she is sickly but brilliant at the piano. Poe takes a liking to her. Cadet Fry was friends with Randolph Bollinger, portrayed by Heckinger, and Cadet Stoddard, portrayed by Brooks. They both attend the school. Landor also seeks the company of Patsy, portrayed by Gainsborough, who works at a local tavern. Now, there's also this professor who can help him in Jean Pepe, portrayed by Duvall. Now, things heat up when Cadet Bellager is also killed. Both of their hearts were stolen, and a room is found where a ritual might have taken place. Landor and Poe have secrets they hide from each other, plus the school has ones of their own that complicate the story as well. Not everyone is as they seem. So that's going to leave my recap introduction to the characters. Where I want to start is that we have a solid murder mystery here. Having this set in the past is good. Also being that this is at an isolated military academy as well. Now this is in the early 1800s, so that limits things in a way that helps the story. It also had my mind working. I originally wondered if this was going to be like a Jack the Ripper story, but I double-checked the years, and this would have been way too early. From there, I focused on the fact that we have Poe as a character. I think that's where I'm going to go next, as that's one of the best parts here. This feels like the writing duo of Cooper and Bayard had a good grasp on the Poe lore as well as his works. I was picking up the references, and that sucked me in. Now, the title, The Pale Blue Eye, made me think of The Tall Tale Heart, which I believe that's the story where the narrator goes crazy due to his benefactor, the guy he works for, having an odd eye. I could also be wrong there, but I believe that there is some trivia that I'll get to here shortly that does confirm that. Other references I noticed was that Leah seems to be the basis for Poe's Lenore. There are the siblings where the sister is ill, could be referring to the fall of the House of Usher. There's also a raven scene throughout with an obvious one there. I appreciated the care and the knowledge they put into this. Now, for that, I did read some trivia about how many believe Poe to have wrote the first detective story with the murders in the Rue Morgue. It is fitting that Poe as the character is helping Landor solve this case. What I want to include here is the pacing as well. Overall, I think that this mystery is good. It had me guessing at different things and trying to piece it together. Now, I do have to say that I think this drags on in the third act as we move toward the resolution. I lost interest since I feel like there's at times where it tries to fit in too much. Where it ends up was good, I appreciated that, I just think it could have got there a bit quicker without needing as much filler. Now I do want to discuss this as a horror movie. At the heart of it, we are getting a crime mystery thriller. Now the horror comes in with how brutal the crimes are. There's an interesting thing here is the first one is a hanging, the body is then mutilated. The crimes get more vicious from there. Now we also get an angle there with whomever is doing this could be a Satanist. A ritual might be the reason for the murders. I still think that this is light in the department, but... We're getting them for sure. So that should be enough for the story, so let me go to the acting. We have an amazing cast here. Bale is good as our lead. He is a tortured man who is trying to get by. He is tormented by things from his past, so he turns to drinking. The investigation gives him purpose, as least it has to be until it's done. I liked Melinus Poe. He has a good look about him that matches the images that I have seen, as well as just the demeanor of the stories and poems that Poe was writing in real life. I like that we have the likes of McBurney, Spall, Jones, Gainsborough, Boynton, Duvall, and Anderson. Now, there's also a younger cast of characters who are the cadets like Lottie, Heckinger, Brooks, Mayer, and even Charlie Tahan. 
it's just a strong cast across the board in my opinion. So all that would be left before I do some trivia would be the filmmaking. I did like the cinematography. It captures the era that we are set, which is good. The costumes and the setting also helps there. There's a bleakness I have in this set during the winter. It almost drains all the color out, and I appreciated that. We don't get a lot in the way of effects. We also don't necessarily need them either. What we got looked to be practical, which I appreciated. Other than that, I thought the soundtrack fit for what was needed there. And then to go over some trivia here, I'm not going to do all of this, but... Edgar promises to honor Landor by including him in a future story. Poe's final short story was entitled Landor's Cottage. As I was saying, the movie title is referring to one of his eyes resembled that of a vulture, a pale blue eye with a film over it. Whenever it fell upon me, my blood ran cold, and so by degrees, very gradually, I made up my mind to take the life of the old man and thus rid myself of the eye forever from the telltale heart. Edgar Allan Poe actually attended West Point for a while around 1830 and had already been seen some of his poetry published the pub owner is named benny and this marks the tavern as benny havens a well-known and long-run establishment in the village of buttermilk falls now highland falls adjacent to west point the tavern existed from the earliest days of the academy and as of this movie's release a bar using this historic name still exists in highland falls new york although this is set in the united states and the characters are american most of the cast is british Spall, Melling, McBurney, and Jones all appeared in the Harry Potter franchise. So I think that's all I'm going to do there for the trivia. So in conclusion, this is a solid murder mystery. It is light on the horror element, so if you're a fan there, you might not necessarily be right for you. Story is interesting. There were twists and turns that kept me interested for the most part. I do think this runs too long where it could have been trimmed down a bit. The cast is strong, though. The setting, cinematography, and how this was made are also good. If you're a fan of Poe, I think you can pull a lot from this. As I recommend this if you're into mysteries like this as well. So my rating here for The Pale Blue Eye is going to be an 8 out of 10. Not going to do a spoiler section. Don't think there's anything else I need to go into there. So let me get you over to the trailer of my second featured review. in a cell. Hammond wants our money. He murdered me. You are next. Ah! What's this?
And for my second featured review is going to be Supernatural. This is from 1933. It was directed by Victor Halperin. This comes from the story by Garnett Weston, who did the adaptation. And then this was written by Harvey F. Thu and Brian Marlowe. There's actually another writer that I found on Letterboxd. I'm not really sure what happened there, but this is starring Carol Lombard, Randolph Scott, and Alan Dinehart. While also having Vivian Osborne, H.B. Warner, Beryl Mercer, William Farnham, Willard Robertson, George Burr McAnon, Lyman Williams, Bobby Barber, Eddie Chandler, Frank O'Connor. This is a horror mystery thriller film that is from the United States. It is currently sitting on a 6.2 on IMDb and a... 3.4 on Letterboxd with our synopsis here being a serial black widow murderess returns to life in the body of a young woman to exact revenge on a former lover, a phony spiritualist who betrayed her. So this movie that I didn't know about until looking for horror movies from 1933 on Letterboxd for my Traverse of the Threes. This is one that I did find on archive.org. The bit that I read to make sure that it was the right one intrigued me, especially for this early into cinema. Other than that, I came into this one blind. So I'll start with our director of Halperin. As I'm going to do some featured notes here, of course, before I get into the movie itself, but he helmed 14 films. I've seen two, both of them in horror. He was brought up there with White Zombie, which I've covered. Now, he also did Revolt of the Zombies and Torture Ship, which I have not seen. Now, to the writers versus Weston. They wrote 21 pictures, and I've seen two. Both are in horror with White Zombie and this. Now, I haven't seen The Ninth Guest as of yet. Over to Marlowe. This is the first that I've seen of his 21. This is the only one in genre as well. Then there is Thu, who I've seen two of his 54. Both were in horror with the Mad Genius and this. So I've seen both of those that are in genre. Lastly, it will be the one that I was telling you about of Sidney Salco. This is the first of the 13 of their works that I've seen and the only one in horror. Now as for the cast, first I'll do Lombard. I've seen two of her 101. The first was Mr. and Mrs. Smith, which was from Alfred Hitchcock. This is the only one in genre, though. Her co-star of Dinehart is where I'll go next. I've only seen one of his 82, only one in horror as well. And the last one I'm actually going to go over here is Osborne, as she has been in 33. This is the only one that I've seen, and her only one in horror as well. So, what I'm going to go back to a bit here is that the synopsis does well in giving you what the movie is about. We start with a line from Confucius, Muhammad, and the Bible about supernatural spirits. It then gives us a newspaper headlines to fill in that our killer is Ruth Rogan, portrayed by Osborne. What is odd about her is that she is has amazing grip strength. I feel like this is implying part of it is her rage. The other part deals with Dr. Carl Houston, portrayed by Warner. He believes that there are spirits that roam the earth looking for bodies. It doesn't come out and confirm this, but it does seem that he feels that Ruth might be possessed by one. He works with the warden, played by Robertson, to take custody of Ruth's body after her execution in the electric chair. Now, she has to agree for this to happen, though. At first, she doesn't, but Dr. Houston does end up convincing her, though, after her execution for him to do his experiments. Something that people don't know is that she is protecting Paul Bavian, portrayed by Dinehart. He is a spiritualist that uses phony things to get away with scamming people. His landlady is Madame Gorgian, portrayed by Mercer. Now, she knows this. He is late on his rent, and she all but blackmails him. Bavian's eyes are set on Roma Courtney, portrayed by Lombard. Now, her twin, John, portrayed by Lyman Williams, passed away, leaving his side of the fortune to her. Now, they were already millionaires as well. Now, she is seeing Grant Wilson, portrayed by Scott. 
who returns home from hearing what happened to John. Now, Bavian is worried that Ruth is going to reveal that he was working with her. When her execution goes down, he feels like he's free. He reaches out to Roma, who is protected by Grant and Nick, Nikki Hammond. Now, he is portrayed by William Farnham. Now, she is intrigued by that Bavian can speak with her brother from beyond the grave. Dr. Houston also factors in here that he has experimented on Ruth. He is worried that what will happen if she gets too close to Roma, especially in the time of grief. Now, Ruth's rage still burns bright. So that's where I'm going to leave my recap and introduction to the characters. Where I want to start is that I found this to be interesting that we have a female serial killer. Now, she's given a motive, which is money. She is marrying men, or at least getting her way into their will before killing them. I'm almost getting the idea that Bavian, with, like, together, they're running this game. That is an interesting prospect for sure. Working together to learn intimate things for financial gain. Either, that, either way, you know, I like that she is the villain here. Now, going to explore this idea a bit more, Dr. Houston believes that there are souls that are too strong to go to the afterlife. So they roam the world, looking for people that they can inhabit and commit crimes they've done in the past. My issue there is that they're removing the concept of people doing bad things because they're just bad. This blames evil spirits in a sense. I do like the idea though. It almost reminds me of another movie from the era with the man with two lives. Now he gets possessed by a spirit of someone just executed as well. This angle is one that I found interesting for sure. Now speaking of possession, I think they do some interesting things with Lombard. She gets to play dual roles. There is a sweet Roma who wears light makeup and from everything that we see is a good person. A morality tale is to not dabble with forces you don't understand. She goes to see Bavian, so that could open her up to what happens. Dr. Houston should be tossed in there as well for having her body. When Roma is possessed by Ruth, she wears darker makeup. She also is meaner. I thought that Lombard did good in portraying how Osborne did. This comes from facial expressions and body language as well. Credit to her for sure. So since I've shifted over to the acting, that's where I'll go next. I have said what I needed to for Lombard. She's great. What is interesting is that Scott gets relegated to where women in this era tended to. He's just there as the man who's in love with Roma, but doesn't add a whole lot. He's trying to help, but he kind of just gets disappears for me. Now, Dinehart is good as a villain that Ruth wants revenge on. He's also a good con artist. I like Osborne in her role. What I should say is that she does everything she needs to to establish Ruth, and that works in the confines, especially when we need to see Roma playing up that she is possessed by this character. Other than that, Warner, Mercer, Farnham, Robertson, and the rest of the cast rounded this out for what was needed. So all that's left to go into would be the filmmaking. Before I do some trivia, I think that cinematography here is well done. It doesn't stand out aside from the scene where Roma goes to Ruth's apartment with Bavian. This freaks him out. They do good things with her remembering different things. And I thought that added interesting tension. There's not a whole lot in the way of effects, but this is also the era. Other than that, I thought the soundtrack fit for what was needed without necessarily standing out. Then just a little bit of trivia for this movie here that I found on the IMDb page is that this is one of the 700 Paramount Productions filmed between 29 and 49 that were sold to MCA Universal for 58 for distribution on television. In Ruth Rogan's life-size self-portrait, she's holding an apple, thereby tying her with the biblical Eve, the original bad girl in Jado Christian Islamic belief. Throughout the film, Rogan is pronounced Rosian, which with the accent on the first syllable. The only horror movie for both Carol Lumbar and Rudolph Scott. In 1924, Dr. Carl Wickland wrote a book called 30 Years Among the Dead. He would give his patients static electric shocks to transfer the obsessive entity to his wife, who was a medium, 
whom he would then converse with and help to free the patient of disembodied spirits. The spirit would also be helped by people on the other side. I think the writer had read this book and they named the doctor in this film Carl. So then, in conclusion here, I think this is a movie that is a bit ahead of its time. We have a story that is exploring interesting ideas with the soul. It is a concept that we would see done in different variations in this era. What I like, though, is that we're following a villain in Ruth and then taking over an innocent woman. Other than that, I think that we get some good things with filmmaking and it moves along at a good pace. If anything, I do think this could have been fleshed out a bit more. Not necessarily a gripe, though, just because of how early into cinema this is and some of the concepts they're exploring haven't been fleshed out yet. So I'd recommend those who enjoy movies from this era, and I gave this one, Supernatural here, a 7.5 out of 10. Now I'm not going to do a spoiler section, but what I'm going to go ahead and do is get you over to one last break before I close out the show. I would like to welcome you back and then just to close everything out here if you'd like to send me an email with any sort of feedback or anything that you'd like to have read on the show you can send me that email at journeywithacinephile at gmail.com if there's anything that you send me you don't want right on the show just let me know in that email if you'd like to read any of the reviews from anything on this episode or any of the past episodes that's horrorreview.webnode.com if you'd like to become friends with me on Facebook I'm David Mishkin Garrett Jr. On Twitter, I'm Buckeye from Mish. Letterboxd, I'm David OSU. And over there, I'll be posting all of the reviews of anything that I'm watching that is horror or non-horror alike. If you'd like to follow my Instagram page, that's David OSU87. If you'd like to follow the Journey with a Cinephile Instagram, that's Journey with a Cinephile, all one word. What I will be posting over there is on both of them the movie posters of anything that I am reviewing. And if you follow my personal one, every now and then you might see some personal pictures if I ever post any because I tend to forget while I'm out and about. And just to make it easier on you, I'll have all of those links in the show notes. And then the last thing I'd ask you to do is that whatever podcatching device you're listening to me on, if you could go ahead and hit subscribe so you never miss a new episode, that would be greatly appreciated. Also, if you're able to rate and review just so I can figure out what I'm doing that you like and what I'm doing that you don't like, as well as to get out to more listeners out there as well. And for my next episode is going to be another Traverse of the Threes. The older movie I'm going to be having on there is going to be Murders in the Zoo. I actually have already watched that. I just need to kind of compile my thoughts, get everything recorded there. Now, I'm not sure what the 2023 release is going to be because I've already watched Any's Men. That is a potential one just because that's an odd little movie. That's going to be a tough one to talk about just because it's so different. And I'll get into it when I do a review of some sort on it on the next episode. But the other potential one is going to be the Last Shift remake. I'm probably going to go see that later today of recording this little thing here. So that one, I believe, is called Malum. So one of those two will be the featured reviews. And I'll also watch more of other things that will be mini reviews on here and everything like that. So I don't think there's anything else I need to get you up to speed with here to close this episode out. So what I will say then in closing is thank you so much for listening whatever you do today i hope you're safe and doing it have a great time out there this is your tour guide of david garrett jr and i am signing off it had been a wonderful evening and what i needed now to give it the perfect ending <laughs>